0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. C. Green's Critique of the Compassion Theory the compassion theory has been criticized by several persons. The measure of a theory is its ability to respond persuasively to trenchant criticism from able critics. I believe that it has the resources to respond to the most serious criticisms. 1. The problem of causing Christ pain for our sins when we repent. Deidre Green maintains that the compassion theory is vastly unacceptable for both Mormons and feminists because it focuses on suffering in an unacceptable way and suggests that those who repent sadistically impose pain on Christ. She stated, quote, If Christ's suffering for an individual's sins does not occur until that individual repents, two problems arise. The first is that the atonement becomes a matter of conscious and volitional sadism on the part of the repentant sinner. The second is that because of this, human individuals themselves who have compassion and empathy for Christ would be highly unmotivated to repent. If, as Osler states, the purpose of the atonement is to overcome our alienation by creating compassion a shared life and union where we are moved by our love for each other then this object is largely subverted by creating a model in which human persons either selfishly and sadistically transfer their pain to christ in an immediate sense or choose to refrain from participating in repentance and atonement for the sake of sparing christ more suffering this is especially true for women who are socialized to place their feelings of others before their own and to choose to suffer themselves in order not to impose suffering on others. Quote. It is a fact that, given the commitments of the compassion theory, that Christ will experience pain if and when we enter into healing relationship with him and through him, with the Father and the Holy Ghost as well. However, we do not foist any such pain upon him as Green contends, He willingly chooses to enter into relationships that entail momentary but excruciating pain in order to realize the joy of healing and indwelling union. Although Green repeatedly decries any view that involves God in pain as a result of relationships, she admits that it does seem that from one aspect of the LDS perspective, Christ suffers in order to experience solidarity with human beings and that human individuals at times experience suffering for the purpose of empathizing with the suffering of Christ. This points to the fact that suffering is a natural part of both human and divine realities, and that simply cannot be avoided. Experiencing suffering helps individuals appreciate what Christ did for them and allows them to relate their own sufferings to his. Nevertheless, Green argues that the compassion theory is morally repugnant because it entails that we foist pointless pain upon Christ in the act of repenting, and no sensitive person would ever choose to do that as a means of repentance. What Green apparently finds appalling is that Christ cannot avoid suffering if we choose to repent. However, Green's critique is mistaken on many different levels. Green repeatedly describes the pain that Christ suffers according to the compassion theory as a form of sadism, or the experience of pain for the purpose of experiencing pain as something sought in itself as the goal of the experience. Her argument that feminists should be especially repulsed by such a view because they often willingly take on pain of others for no reason, underscores this point. Such a view vastly distorts the compassion theory and engages in the most uncharitable view of suffering possible as a basis of critique. To proceed, I will make a few basic distinctions. First, I will distinguish different ways in which the divine persons may be aware of our pain and participate in it. Empathetic Sharing of Experience Empathy is sharing another's experience by attempting to imagine how the other must feel based upon one's own experience. Omniscient sharing experience Omniscient beings participate directly in the experience of others in the sense that they know from a third-person perspective what the other is experiencing. Compassionate sharing of experience Participating in another's experience from a first-person perspective by having the same experience and sharing the very experience that is experienced by another. I have argued that the divine persons united as one Godhead share in our experience in the sense of empathetic and omniscient sharing of experience. However, they cannot have a first-hand experiential knowledge of alienation, rejection, isolation, and aloneness while united as one Godhead. This limitation on the divine knowledge is inherent in their mode of being at one with each other or being united in co-inherence or indwelling unity the compassion theory claims that christ's experiential knowledge qualified him uniquely to atone in two respects first his experience includes first-hand experience of the fullness of alienation on the cross in light of a knowledge of what union with the father is in gethsemane Second, he shares with us the very pain of our sins, because whatever energy it is that causes that pain in us is transferred to him in union of our life's light to be transformed and quickened by his light. Thus, the compassion theory posits that in Gethsemane and on the cross, Christ experienced, one, empathetic suffering for all who have and will suffer under the weight of sins, two, omniscient suffering, knowing all the sins that had been committed to that point in time, and three, compassionate sharing of experience for all who had repented to that time. Further, Christ suffers a momentary pain when we are joined to him in the moment of justification by faith through the grace of unconditional acceptance in love. However, this momentary pain is transformed into greater light and enduring joy through the healing power of his life's light. Both Christ and we receive mutual joy through atonement by being joined in healed relationships of intimate union. Green's critique rests upon the false assumption that we cannot be justified in choosing to create pain for another or that we could do so out of love. However, I want to distinguish between pointless suffering and redemptive suffering to demonstrate how far off her critique is. This distinction is critical to discussing the compassion theory, and it is Green's failure to attend to this distinction that vitiates her critique. Pointless suffering causing another to suffer psychological and or physical pain for the sake of experiencing the pain for no reason at all. Redemptive suffering giving occasion for another to freely choose to suffer psychological and or physical pain so that suffering further pain can be avoided or for some benefit that outweighs the disvalue of the pain. It is, of course, commonplace that we may justifiably choose to cause another to suffer some physical pain because of the benefits that may be derived from doing so. For instance, parents may choose justifiably to cause pain to their children to become vaccinated through a shot. Could a person choose to allow another to voluntarily experience pain to benefit oneself as well as the one for whom the pain is caused? To answer this question, I'll tell two stories. In the year 1850, a husband had been discussing with his wife whether to have children. He knows that pregnancy appears to be beyond uncomfortable and that childbirth is extremely painful and perhaps deadly. He has limited and pathetic understanding of the pain she may experience if they choose to have children. But he wants to be a father. He wants to beget new life and participate in raising children. His wife says that she also wants to have children. Could he justifiably choose to engage in intimate union with his wife to create new life even though he knows that it will cause great though momentary pain for his wife and could even result in her death? Could he do so out of love? I submit that the answer to both questions is rather clearly yes. Now the scenario may seem patriarchal because it approaches the question from a male's point of view. However, consider the roles. He is cast as the sinner and she as the savior by analogy to the compassion theory of atonement. She also wants to have a baby. She knows that by entering into intimate union with her husband to create new life, she will be exposed to great pain, and that she will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But out of her love for her husband and her unborn child, she is willing to undergo that pain. Is that remotely sadomasochistic? I trust that even a feminist could see the point of this analogy, and perhaps it is precisely the feminist who will appreciate it most. Consider another story. A husband has committed adultery. He has hidden the truth from his wife because he doesn't want to hurt her. He knows that she will feel pain if he reveals his secrets. He is truly sorrowful for the injury he has caused to their relationship. However, he desires to have an honest, authentic, and truly trusting relationship with his wife. He loves her and wants to realize true intimacy and a deeper relationship with her. He realizes that he cannot achieve his desire for more intimate and authentic relationship with her unless he confesses. Indeed, he realizes that by withholding the truth he deprives his wife of the freedom of choosing to be in relationship with him as he truly is. He has made the judgment that if she truly knew him, she would reject him, and thus his secrecy is a form of failing to trust her. Perhaps she will reject him, but he realizes that it is her choice to make. He realizes that he is being paternalistic by attempting to shield her from the pain that the truth about his sins will cause. Is the husband a sadist if he chooses to confess the truth about his affair to his wife and ask her forgiveness? Hardly. It seems to me to be the most loving thing that he can do. Given the fact that he has sinned against her, it demonstrates genuine trust to honor her freedom to choose by facing up to the truth about what he has done. Perhaps a relationship that is a facade can be endured for a small amount of time, but who could endure such a relationship for an eternity? I suggest that such constraints on authentic and loving relationship are exactly the same for a faithful, trusting, and authentic relationship with God. Both of these stories demonstrate redemptive love, willingness to allow another to willingly experience pain for the benefit of authentic relationships and new life. I submit that they show that Green's approach to suffering suffers from failure to recognize the distinction between pointless pain and redemptive suffering. Is an eternity of union in fullness of love with us, through our repentance, worth the pain that Christ suffers in atonement? I suggest that the answer is, once again, clearly, a resoundingly yes. Moreover, he has already voluntarily made the choice to undergo such suffering in order to be reconciled to us. He has already fully prepared himself through his incarnate experience to heal our stripes and salve our wounds with his loving light. He has already said yes to us and accepted us as worthy of relationship with him as a matter of loving grace. If we refuse to repent and accept his offer of relationship, then the pain of his mortal experience is meaningless in our lives and we reject his own demand to repent. Perhaps more importantly, the truth is that our sinful actions cause pain to those in relationship with us. Indeed, sin consists in precisely the evil of pain committed when interpersonal relationships are injured and alienation is created. Given the commitments of the compassion theory, the only way to avoid the pain inherent in sin is to refrain from sinning in the first place. The only way to stop the pain once we have sinned is to trust Christ and repent. Green thus misses the central motivating point of the compassion theory. To avoid creating pain for Christ in atonement, one must avoid sin. It is ironic that Green critiques the compassion theory by arguing that it fails to recognize that an unjust double punishment could motivate us to repent. Green argues, quote, While double punishment significantly challenges the concept of justice, it could prove efficacious in motivating persons to repent. Since Osler's theory focuses on compassion, it might allow for the possibility that when a person believes that Christ has already suffered for sins, she may be motivated to repent by the desire not to allow that previous suffering to go in vain. Osler's solution presented in order to preserve justice fails to recognize how the concept of double punishment could serve as impetus for repentance for a compassionate person. End quote. Yet Green's suggestion here seems both backwards and morally reprehensible. She admits that double punishment is in fact unjust, but this injustice can motivate us to repent because we can give meaning to the pain that Christ has already suffered. How? He has already suffered, and he suffers regardless of whether we repent. What could be less motivating than the fatalistic realization that Christ has suffered, and there is nothing we can do about it because he has already fully suffered, whether we sin or not? That seems to be maximally unmotivating to me. In contrast, the compassion theory entails that if we don't sin, then he doesn't feel the pain of our sins that never occur. Thus, we are motivated to refrain from sinning in the first place, and we realize that there is no cheap grace that gets us off scot-free with no one suffering. It also entails that his suffering is given meaning by our repentance because our repentance has achieved Christ's purpose in suffering, reconciliation, avoidance of any further suffering for our sins of which we repent, and transformation to a new life in union with Christ and his God in the greatest joy possible. If that isn't motivating to repent, what could possibly motivate us to repent? Indeed, Doctrine and Covenants 19, verses 15 through 20, urge us to repent so that we can avoid the pain of our sins that we will experience if we don't repent. I turn to that scripture now. 2. Critique of Scriptural Exegesis Green also critiques the scriptural basis that I claim for the compassion theory of atonement. In particular, she criticizes the use of Doctrine and Covenants 19 to support the theory. Doctrine and Covenants 19, 15 through 17 states, Therefore I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath, and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not! How exquisite you know not! Yea, how hard to bear you know not! For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Wherefore, I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. Green states, quote, The canon to which Osler wants to give primacy states that Christ has already suffered for our sins and that we will suffer for them in futurity if we do not repent of them while in mortality. Scripture is clear that this is a suffering we have not yet experienced and that we cannot comprehend. Yet Osler claims that Christ feels our pain through our volitional transference. Osler is correct that the transfer is real, but not that it happens in real time in the act of repentance. Moreover, section 19 implies that God does not consider double punishment unjust. Thus, Green reads Doctrine Covenants 19 to state, A. God suffered these things in Gethsemane, for all who have been, are now, or ever, will be mortal, regardless of whether they repent. I accept that Green's reading of Doctrine and Covenants 19 is one possible reading, and perhaps the standard view as far as I know. However, I pointed out four problems with this standard reading. One, problem of backward causation. It creates a problem of backward causation because Christ suffers for sins that haven't even been committed yet. Two, denial of free will. If Christ has suffered for our sins that we will commit, then we cannot be free to not commit them. Nothing could be sure than the logical entailment that we do not have power to avoid performing acts that have already had causal effect in the world before we commit them. 3. Double Punishment The standard reading creates a problem of double punishment because Christ suffers for our sins that we don't repent of, and thus we both suffer for the same sins. 4. Violates the Innocence Principle The notion that Christ suffers for our sins violates the principle that it is unjust to cause an innocent person to suffer for the actions of another person who is guilty of those actions. To avoid these problems, I offer another reading of Doctrine and Covenants 19 that I believe remains faithful to the text. B. God suffered these things, i.e. empathetic pain in Gethsemane on the cross and also the actual pain of our sinfulness, for all those who repent and those who don't repent must suffer these pains personally. Given the fact that the original revelation didn't have any punctuation, the statement in Doctrine and Covenants 19:16-17 is actually, behold I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent, but if they would not repent they must suffer even as I. The referent of all is thus to all those who repent and not to all that might exist at any time. I suggest that this reading has two overriding virtues. One, it avoids the four problems with the standard reading I have discussed, and two, it makes more sense of the two conditional clauses of the text. Green agrees that the problems I have pointed out are real problems that deserve due consideration. To accommodate these problems so that Christ's suffering doesn't involve backward causation and attendant denial of free will, Green suggests that there is a better reading. Quote, There is a better way around the problem of God's limited foreknowledge by relying on LDS Scripture. While for Osler, a negation of absolute foreknowledge precludes an infinite atonement being wrought at a particular historical moment, in order to be true to LDS scripture, he must allow the possibility that there is an upper limit to the amount of sin that individuals can commit. If this is so, then there is some maximal level of collective sin of which God is aware and for which Christ could have atoned at a particular moment in the past, unquote. Quote, Given the scriptures of the Restoration, one can presume that God can anticipate an upper bound of sin and suffering humans will experience individually and collectively. This does not require God's absolute foreknowledge, but only that God knows where the bounds are set. Christ suffers the maximal amount of human sin. Christ's suffering is not unjust, since his suffering is volitional. Green's view would require us to reject the standard reading and reinterpret Doctrine and Covenants 9. 16 through 17 as follows c god suffered the pain of these things in gethsemane for all who have do now or may ever become mortal to the full extent they could possibly sin even if they don't actually commit the sins and regardless of whether they repent now this is a rather amazing suggestion giving green's concern about what she calls the sadistic suffering she claims is entailed by the compassion theory This view entails that Christ suffers for sins that aren't even committed. Indeed, Christ suffers to the maximum extent logically possible given the persons who could exist. Green's theory indeed entails that Christ suffers the maximum amount of pointless suffering possible. What could be more sadistic in calculating than this view suggested by Green? On the other hand, the compassion theory of atonement entails that all of Christ's suffering is redemptive and none of it is pointless. It is all in furtherance of repentance and the gift of new life in union with Christ. The entirety of Christ's suffering is directed toward the purpose of healing relationships and transforming our darkness into light. Christ's suffering is thus maximally redemptive on the compassion theory of atonement and maximally pointless on Green's reading. That is ironic, to say the least, given her critique. Further, Green suggests that Christ suffers the actual pain of guilt, even though he is innocent and not guilty of anything. Green also claims that this needless suffering, quote, is not unjust since his suffering is volitional, unquote. Even were Christ willing to suffer for sins that are never committed, it isn't just for him to suffer for our guilt. Say that I have stolen an item from a store, but the store owner thinks my son did it and he is punished in my place. My son hides my involvement to keep from exposing my guilt. If my son is punished for something that I did and he willingly undergoes that punishment to hide my guilt, it seems to me that matters are made doubly worse. The person who should be punished escapes punishment and the innocent person is unjustly punished. This double problem plagues Green's suggested view of atonement, but it gets even worse. Christ suffers pain for sins that were never in fact committed on on this view. He is punished for nothing at all. This latter problem of innocent suffering is made even greater because Green insists that it is precisely the pain of being guilty and morally culpable that Christ must suffer if he suffers pain for our sins. She states, What is the pain of our sins other than guilt? In an LDS view, Christ suffers for pains other than pains for our sins, and transfer of these pains need not imply moral culpability. Green cites Alma chapter 7, 11 through 13 here. The pain for our sins, however, seems to be precisely pointing toward the issue of guilt and implies moral culpability, She also rejects that the guilt for sins is personal by its very nature. Yet her own view of atonement violates the innocence principle. It is the most egregious way possible by having Christ pay the price for sins that are not even ever committed. It also entails, if her argument here holds any water, that Christ fills the pain of such upper limit of possible sins precisely because he is guilty and morally culpable for them, even though he did nothing for which he is guilty. This view seems to be maximally morally reprehensible to me. Thus, while Green's suggested explanation for Christ's suffering in fact solves the problem of backward causation, it fails to resolve the problem of double punishment and violates the innocence principle three times over. Moreover, what causes this actual pain in Christ for sins that are never committed? Sins that are never committed couldn't cause such pain given the very plausible principle that what doesn't exist cannot cause anything. Does the Father cause this pain? If so, then the Father is not merely unjust but sadistic. It also follows that to know the supposed upper limit of sin requires God to have middle knowledge, which I have argued at length is conceptually incoherent and inconsistent with free will. Just why Green fills the LDS scripture and tells that there must be an upper limit to the pain that can be generated by sins, or whether there could possibly be a maximum amount of number of sins, simply escapes me. Green nevertheless claims that the compassion theory gets the Temporal ordering of the atonement wrong because she claims that Doctrine and Covenants 19 shows that Christ already completely suffered and fully completed the atonement while in Gethsemane. However, that isn't what it says. Look again at what Doctrine and Covenants 19:19 states. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Christ finished his preparations. The compassion theory maintains that the extremes of Christ's mortal suffering uniquely prepared him to atone, to accomplish healing of our relationship in the here and now. He completed everything necessary to be able to bear our sins. Quote, Having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. That's Mosiah 15.9. So there is an already completely accomplished aspect of atonement in Christ's experiences in Gethsemane, death on the cross and resurrection. He has completed his preparations necessary to be able to atone. However, there is also an aspect of atonement that is ongoing and not yet fully accomplished, union with us through our repentance here and now. Green also argues that the compassion theory adopts a problematic notion of retributive justice that ought to be critically assessed. She argues that my citation of Alma 34, verses 11 through 12, see also Alma 42, entails a notion of retributive justice or the notion that persons must suffer punishment for their violations of law. Alma thirty-four, eleven through 12 says, Now, there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood, which will atone for the sins of another. Now if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, Nay. But the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Unquote. Green is correct that the Nephite law reflected in Alma 3411 11-12 assumes a retributive theory of justice where a person must suffer a penalty for a violation of law, capital punishment for murder. However, I expressly rejected the retributive theory of punishment. The only purpose for which I cite Alma 34 is to establish the innocence principle. It is unjust to punish an innocent person for what a guilty person did. Moreover, I expressly adopted a view of justice, the law of restoration, discussed by Alma in Alma 41, where we each receive in return what we send out and ultimately what we truly desire. This is the notion of justice inherent in the agape theory of ethics, which bases moral judgments on the nature of what is required to establish loving relationships. Indeed, I spend not less than three chapters arguing for this view of justice. So, I am a bit discomfited that a reader as intelligent as Green could have misunderstood what I wrote about the notion of justice. However, I am sure that the failure to communicate effectively is mine and not hers. Number three, claims of logical inconsistencies. Green also claims that there are several logical inconsistencies in the compassion theory. Green claims that the compassion theory appears inconsistent because it claims that The pain for sins is extinguished in the death of Christ's flesh on the cross. She claims that such a claim is inconsistent with the claim that there is no backward causation or foreknowledge. But Green is confused. I don't claim that all sins were extinguished in Christ's death on the cross. Rather, only all of the sin that existed as of that time were extinguished. I speak metaphorically of how even our sins are extinguished in the cross because in virtue of Christ's death on the cross, the reign of sin is overcome in the resurrection. He completed his preparations to atone, and thus the sins for which we repent are atoned already in the sense that all we have to do is repent, and Christ is able to do the rest in virtue of his mortal experiences and resurrection. He has already accepted us into relationship. The question is whether we will reciprocate. Green admits, quote, may be speaking metaphorically here, unquote. However, she argues that, quote, the metaphor is misleading as it attempts to locate the necessity of Christ's suffering in the historical past, unquote. Of course, all metaphors break down at some point, but I suggest that the metaphor is more than appropriate. With Christ's death and resurrection, our ability to repent is assured. The compassion theory clearly doesn't try to locate Christ's suffering for our sins only in the past, It is also in the moment of justification in which we enter into a new relationship of shared life in him. She also claims that the theory is inconsistent because it claims that, quote, Christ suffers when we sin, i.e. fail to live the law of love, yet Christ does not suffer until we repent, i.e. succeed in living the law of love by working toward reconciliation and obedience to Christ, unquote. I, of course, do not claim that God doesn't experience pain until we repent. He suffers the pain of loss when we reject him. Green's assertion of inconsistency fails to pay attention to the distinction between suffering at the time we choose to breach the relationship and alienate ourselves from God and the compassionate pain that only a God can suffer by sharing our lives with us in indwelling unity. These two kinds of suffering are not mutually exclusive, which of course they must be for Green's argument to work. There are also claims made by Greene, following Yvonne Guevara, that are rather outrageous in my view. Greene joins many feminist theorists in claiming that women suffer in particular as victims of the view that Christ showed love by his sacrificial death. She claims that, quote, What is problematic with lifting up the crucifixion as the ultimate act of love is that it not only validates current suffering, but incites women to seek unnecessary sacrifice, unquote. Neither Green nor Gebara provide a shred of evidence for this rather strident empirical claim. Moreover, it appears to me to be unsupportable. How would they know that viewing the crucifixion as an expression of God's love for us somehow incites women to seek unnecessary suffering? It is this kind of victimology that I believe is not only evidentially unjustified, but it devalues and denigrates Christ's gift to us. Let us agree that there is nothing good per se in suffering itself. The horror of Jesus' brutal and violent death on a Roman cross is a reminder of the corruption of imperial governmental power and the depth of human depravity and sin. However, the suffering of Jesus is also the ultimate expression of God's loving choice to be with us sinners in the depth of human despair and alienation. The fact that God Himself, the Son of the Father in the Godhead, emptied Himself of His glory. To descend below all things, to experience the most remote depths of such excruciating physical pain and abandonment by the Father in the moment of greatest need, expresses a love so great that it shocks us. In this suffering, we see perfect obedience to God's will to lay down his life for his friends. Green's suggestion that we should not recognize love in Jesus' suffering because it, quote, validates suffering, unquote, misses the entire point of the fact that we have a Savior who suffer for and with us so that we don't have to. Her claims trivialize the undoubted failure to adequately value women's voices in the past. Christ's suffering ends the need to suffer. The message, for not only women, but all of us, is that we already have a Savior and we don't need another. Indeed, the most emphatic point of Christ's atonement is that both sin and continuing to suffer for our own sins is pointless and just plain stupid. We don't have to suffer for our sins, if only we will repent by turning back toward God, who stands with open arms waiting for us to walk into his embrace. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thought.